What's going on, guys? Welcome back to The Sack. I'm your host, Connor, and we're talking balls, episode four. I fly with the stars in the skies. I am no longer trying to survive. I believe that life is a... This weekend was absolutely crazy. We had a great weekend of college football, which I will touch on briefly. Um, But we had the first week of the NFL season take place. And if this is any indication of how the rest of the season is going to go, we are in for one hell of a year. So we got a lot to talk about. I'm going to try and run through it as quickly as I can while still giving you my full opinions and thoughts on things. Let's get started with the bets that we gave you last week, Pico and I. Um, we took some L's. You're not going to go undefeated against Vegas. It's just not going to happen if you do. Uh, send me your number. I'll pay you. You're just not going to go undefeated. So the L's that we took, uh, we mentioned Niners winning that football game. That was an L. Uh, I gave you Jags to win the football game and to cover. Blew that shit in the fourth quarter. Brutal. That's an L. And I gave you Carolina Panthers over the Browns. And I did tell you this would be one of the strongest money lines. Uh, it was anything but one of the strongest money lines. However, that team was in a position to win the game with a minute, 15 seconds left. Uh, and they crumbled. The Browns did make a long field goal to win it, which I give them credit for. But Panthers had that in the bag after uh, scratching and clawing, fighting all the way back. They give the game away with a minute, 15 left. It was kind of heartbreaking. Um, but it is what it is. Moving on. Um, let's talk about the wins because we had some good ones. Okay. First one uh, in that Niners game, we said the Niners were going to win, but we told you the Bears were going to cover. They did just that. Seven-point underdogs, they won the game outright. Uh, that game was a shit bowl, but whatever. There's a winner for you. Um, Tone gave you the Giants under 43. That was a close call. Ended up with a total of 41 points. Good on you, Tone, giving the people a winner. Uh, we mentioned Ravens minus seven. We didn't talk much. We just told you to take it to the bank, and sure enough, that one cashed. Um, we also gave you Viking spread and money line at home. We'll talk about that game in a little bit. And we also gave you giant spread and money line at home. And we will be talking about that game because Coach Dayball and the Giants got me bricked up. All right. I'm still coming down from cloud nine yesterday. Um, can't wait to talk about that game. So we did good. I mean, that's if you count them up, that's seven winners, three or four losses. So. Give you some green on Sunday, going into Monday night. That's what we want. Um, I will say, Tone's bitch-ass teaser did lose, courtesy of Burrow, throwing four picks to the Steelers. Um, Ravens cleared that, and the Bengals were looking like they were going to win up until the last second, and then, you know, the NFL happened, and they didn't win. So the bitch-ass teaser lost, but we'll be back with more bitch-ass teasers throughout the course of the season, so stay tuned for those. Fantasy football. I love you. I fucking hate you. Um, the biggest love-hate relationship that I have in my life. You try to make the right decision. And then you got Cam Akers playing five snaps or whatever the hell it was. You got Devontae Smith getting four targets, no catches, running around in circles. What are we doing? Um, before we talk about the bad people, shout out Patrick Mahomes. Justin Jefferson, Michael Pittman, Cooper Cup, Devontae Adams, Saquon Barkley, just a few names, did what they were supposed to do, absolutely lit up the field, put up points for their, their teams. Um, so good on you. 
Cam Akers, trash this week. Devontae Adams, or I'm sorry, Devontae Smith, trash. Mike Gesicki, Miami tight end, trash. Allen Robinson, trash. Donald Mooney, trash. Alvin Kamara, trash. Rodgers, trash. Dak, trash. Trey Lance, trash. T. Higgins, garbage. Dawson Knox, one catch for like five yards. In a, in a game where Josh Allen goes off, how, do you, how does he only get five yards? Kyle Pitts. Falcons were in that game the entire time, and I get that they were leading, so they might have been running. The game script might not have fit to pass. But how does he not get more work than what he did? C.D. Lamb. The entire Cowboys were god-awful, which I'm not mad about. Fuck the Cowboys. But C.D. Lamb was absolutely terrible last night. So there were a lot of duds in fantasy. I think there were more duds than uh, above-average performances, especially from people that you wouldn't expect. Um, fantasy going to drive you crazy. Drove me crazy this week. It's going to drive me crazy all year. But it's going to be very fun. It's going to be very, very fun. And luckily for me, my team's got their ass kicked, so this Monday night game don't matter. Moving right along, let's get into what happened. The week one action, a lot of it went down. We're going to start all the way back at Thursday, Bills-Rams. Bills thrashed the Rams 31-10 to at home. Um, my biggest takeaway from this game is not so much that the Bills are as good of a team as we thought, um, because I believe that they performed the way that we expected them to uh, after their heartbreaking loss in the playoffs last year and the year before that you knew that Josh Allen was coming out with something to prove and he has one thing on his mind and that is a Super Bowl it's Super Bowl or bust in Buffalo if they don't get it it's a failure even if they get there it's, and they don't win it it's a failure um, and I think you could see the difference in desperation between the two teams when they played uh, the Bills were ready to go from the beginning the Rams were gifted two turnovers in the first half that's how they got their 10 points uh, without those two turnovers Score could have been even more lopsided. They may not have scored at all. All right. Um, so for me, it's that the Rams may not be that offensive team that we saw last year. Uh, they looked very, very average on offense. They couldn't move the ball worth a shit. They had no running game. Stafford was terrible. 29 of 41, 240 yards, one touchdown, three interceptions. Um, Simply put, he has to play at a higher level for this team to succeed because you look at Cooper Cup's numbers, 13 receptions on 15 targets, 128 yards and a touchdown. That's ho-hum for Cooper Cup. He's going to do that week in and week out. So other teams are going to look at what the Bills did to the Rams and they're going to say, okay, we can let Cooper Cup get his. I mean, 128 yards, 13 catches, that's a pretty good game. He's not going to do much better than that. And if we can let Cooper Cup eat, and still hold this team to 10 points, there's going to be a lot of ways to defeat the Rams, a lot of ways to make them one-dimensional, a lot of ways to put pressure on Stafford, which the Bills did, and force him into mistakes. So I think we need to pay attention to how the Rams respond to this. I don't think they're going to go away. Um, but as we mentioned on last episode, we thought the NFC West was kind of three-tiered with the Niners, the Rams, and then you had the Cardinals right in the middle there with the Seahawks at the bottom. I mean, I'm not going to overreact after week one, but after what I saw from the Niners and the Rams and even the Cardinals playing better competition than the first two teams did, uh, I would have to group those three teams together. And the NFC West is looking wide open after week one. So the Rams lacked star power. They lacked creativity on offense. They got nothing from their second receiver, Allen Robinson. Um, I don't think he had a target or, or his second target until the fourth quarter of the game, which was an end zone heave on fourth down, which was basically a Hail Mary. Uh, they got nothing from Akers. 
So this team's definitely got to go back to the drawing board, come back. Yeah, they probably faced the best team in the NFL, but they laid a, they laid a dud out there. Um, it was terrible. Pretty embarrassing, especially coming off a, such a good year that they had last year. So we'll pay attention to them. We'll see. Um, but I don't think they're going to be as feared across the league as they were last year. Next game, Pittsburgh Steelers. Shout out Mike Tomlin and the boys going into Cincinnati, getting a gritty, a gritty win against a team that went to the Super Bowl against the Rams, the Cincinnati Bengals. Um, I mean, the Steelers' defense was on Joe Burrow like Moss on a Mississippi tree stump. I mean, they sacked him numerous times, pressuring him all throughout the day. They would not let him get comfortable. Had a pick six, okay? Um, they had four interceptions total. So, and at the end of the day, you saw at the end of the game, the defense and special teams made the play when they needed to make the play. That was a great win for the Steelers. I don't think anybody gave him a chance to win. Um, and I think that's a big reflection of Mike Tomlin uh, because clearly Bengals had a severe quarterback advantage, severe skill, skill player advantage uh, with the receivers and running backs that they have in Cincinnati. Mike Tomlin was able to bring Mitch Trubisky and crew in there and take down the Bengals. It's very impressive. Great division win. Even though it's all the way in September, week one, people might forget about it. This game could loom large for both of these teams can, uh, if they both keep winning games and competing throughout the rest of the season. So good for the Steelers. That was gritty. Um, even to give up that touchdown to Chase, block the extra point, come back and win it in overtime. Uh, that's ballsy. Good for character. Good for the brand. Uh, good for the Steelers. Next game, we talked about Dolphins and Pats. Uh, Tones mentioned that there was no way that the Dolphins were going to lose that game. And if any of you guys watched it, you would agree with him on that. Uh, Dolphins were in control of this game from the beginning. The Pats had no rhythm on offense. They couldn't move the ball. Um, they dominated on defense. They hurt Mac Jones back. They made the plays on offense. And they played like a winning football team. Okay, They played a complete game. Tua was very good, very efficient. Uh, that, that play call from McDaniels on fourth and seven with 23 seconds left in the first half, that was nailing the coffin right there. I mean, I love the fact that he went for it because they were in Patriots territory. So you don't get it on fourth down. There's 23 seconds left chances of Patriots getting any kind of points out of that. Yeah, they could, they can get it in field goal range and get three, but I love the fact that you're proving to your players that you're not here just to participate. You're here to win. You're here to go for it. And to me, what McDaniel showed is he showed trust in his quarterback. He showed trust in his offensive players to execute the game plan. And they did that. And I'll tell you what, um, they're going to compete in this division. They are, I think, the clear second best team in this division. They're going to give the Bills a run for their money when they play. And I hope we see this team in the playoffs because they could be very, very exciting. Very exciting. Next game. Uh, I'm not going to toot my own horn on this game. Okay. I'm not going to brag too much. But I think it played out exactly how we thought it would based on last week. So we got Vikings and Packers in Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota wound up winning this game 23-7. to seven. Uh, Really, the Packers were never in it. The Vikings smothered Aaron Rodgers. He had nowhere to go. Um, and if you guys did watch this game as well, you could see that the tone was set after the first drive for the Packers. Uh, Rodgers drops back. He's got rookie receiver, second-round pick, Christian Watson, absolutely burned his corner. And there is not another DB or safety within five or seven yards of him. Rodgers puts the ball right on the money, as Rodgers often does to his receivers, and poor kid drops it. And, you know, we talked about last week how Rodgers might be pressuring, pressuring his, his young receivers into mistakes. 
causing them to play tense, play up tight. I think you saw that on the first drive of the game. And that set the tone for the, for the Vikings defense. It set the tone for the Green Bay offense. And the Packers could not seem to recover from that mistake after that. Um, Vikings went ahead in the first quarter, 7-0. At halftime, it was 17-0. And really, the Packers never got any rhythm going. Rodgers was running for his life and sacked all day. Um, the one bright spot for the Packers, I would say, is their running back to it. They had Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon moving the ball for them very well. Um, but I'll tell you what, I stand by the fact that I think the Vikings are winning this division. And let me talk about this Vikings team for a second. Uh, you look at the NFC and how all of the quote unquote top teams perform the Rams, the Niners, the Cowboys, right? Um, the Packers against the Vikings. None of those teams played well yesterday. The only other team that played well in the NFC to me would be the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, they played a lesser opponent, in my opinion, in the Detroit Lions. But the Eagles played a great game offensively and defensively. They held off the Lions. Um, but the Vikings got to be looking around the NFC and how these other teams perform. And they got to be thinking that they're looking like after week one. I know it's a long way to go. But to me, they're looking like the best team in the NFC after week one. Dalvin Cook didn't even have a big game. Adam Thielen didn't even have a big game. Uh, it was it was Justin Jefferson's game. He had 180 yards, two touchdowns. I mean, if they can beat a division rivals in the Packers with one player without even getting their star running back or second receiver involved, I mean, this is going to be a very, very, very scary offense. And if the defense can do what they did, like what they did against Aaron Rodgers, they're going to cause a lot of problems for opposing quarterbacks, a lot of problems. And teams going into Minnesota are going to have problems winning there. That's a bad environment for visiting teams. Vikings fans, bring it. I love this team this year. I really do. I think they're going to win the division. I think they're going to make noise in the playoffs once they get there. Um, one last note I want to bring up about the Minnesota Vikings. They got a new coach, Kevin O'Connell, from the Rams. Um, and he's part of the Sean McVay coaching tree, if you will. Uh, they're kind of taking over the NFL, infiltrating the league. They're supposed to be offensive mastermind. Sean McVay, known for his offensive IQ. Um, if you look at the Rams and you look at the Vikings on Thursday and Sunday, two totally different offenses were playing. You could see one had rhythm, one had flow, one was executing the game plan. They knew what they were doing with the football. And one, the Rams, had no idea what they were doing. They couldn't move the football. They were stuck in the mud, no rhythm, no flow. And what's the difference? O'Connell. Uh, I think we saw the Vikings operating at a level that was more reminiscent of the Rams last year. And we saw the Rams revert back to an offense pre-Matthew Stafford, kind of in the Jared Goff era, where they weren't as dynamic as they were just a season ago. So that hiring of O'Connell for Minnesota could prove to be one of the biggest moves in the whole league. Um, the Vikings are scary. Do not sleep on them. And this was a big, big win for them in the division uh, at home. Start the season 1-0. This was huge. If I'm Aaron Rodgers, I'm worried about my team and I'm worried about the Vikings in this division for sure. All right, last game we're going to talk about, and it is my absolute favorite. I'm still bricked up. I told you guys. The New York Giants went into Tennessee and they've knocked off the number one seed. Tennessee Titans and Ryan Tannehill, King Henry, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to hear that shit. Okay. 
I told you last week that we were coming. I told you it was different. Okay. Again, I'm not trying to tell you I told you so, but this Giants team is different. All right. To go on the road and win against an AFC contender last year with arguably one of the best players in the NFL on their team, um, it gives us fans a lot of reasons to be excited. Okay. This is in a game where Daniel Jones almost pulled a patented Daniel Jones fuck us and gave away the game with 10 minutes left in the fourth quarter as we're knocking on the door about to score a touchdown. So if you missed it, we punt the ball away, Tennessee uh, punt returner muffs it, and we recover it on like the 10 or 15-yard line. Daniel Jones, on third down, tries to sneak this ball into Saquon Barkley running into the end zone. And I rewatched this play like 30 times, and I watched the DB 30 times. He was staring into the backfield the entire play. So what concerns me is that Daniel Jones could not see this one DB staring at him, blanketing Barkley, and he threw the ball anyway. The DB undercut the throw very easily, picked the ball off, and it was just like, dude, what is this fucking guy doing? And that's the kind of shit I'm talking about that he needs to not do. If he can just not hurt our team, we're not expecting Daniel Jones to win us games. I hope you understand that, Danny Dimes. I don't need you to win us games. We have much better skill players than you on our team. I need you to not lose me the game, which is what you almost did. Okay. Luckily we got a horse. I think he's back. I put my name on him this year. All my friends who drafted him in fantasy, I said, you're going to be fucking happy. Saquon Barkley led all rushers in the NFL. I think he had 19 total touches, hundred or 20 touches, hundred or 190 total yards, 165 rushing yards led all rushers in the league. He's going to be great. If he can pr produce like that for the Giants, we're going to make noise in our division. Mark my words. You might think I'm crazy, but I'm not. Okay? Um, and let's talk about Brian Dayball. That little blueberry motherfucker. Excuse my language. I could not be more excited for the Brian Dayball era after that game. He, he's been preaching to the players all camp that He's going to put his trust in his guys and he's not going to coach scared. He's going to coach aggressive and he's going to let his players win games. He did just that, right? 19 to 20, probably a minute left in the game. We score a touchdown and he immediately is thinking of going for two. He didn't really ever think about going for one, which I love. And the other thing I love is there were reports that he was asking some defensive players and other players on the team. Hey, you guys mind if I go for two here? And they were all were like, fuck yeah, let's go for two. So what that shows me is Dave all trusts his players. His players trust him. They bought into his system. And this guy is a leader of men, son. Okay. He's rallying the locker room around him. And I think we are going to do big, big things this year. We may not make it, you know, as far as people are, are as far as I'm making it sound right now, we may not even make it to the playoffs but I think we're going to make noise and we are going to be pushing for the playoffs this year. Um, as long as Daniel Jones can just manage a game and not give it away, we're going to be okay. Look, we, we just beat the Titans at home when they were winning the entire game. Okay. For the giants to scratch and claw and come all the way back like that. And then for Dayball to risk it on a two point conversion. That is so unbelievably ballsy. Him and McDaniels need a wheelbarrow. Like Tyreek's Brett Tyreek Hill said, get them boys a wheelbarrow. They got a, carry around those ginormous nuts all week before week two um they deserve a dinner 
from the owners. That was gutsy calls from both of them. Obviously, it paid off. And I'll tell you what, even if the Giants didn't get that two-point conversion, I'm happy with the attempt to go for it because losing teams would have kicked that extra point and, and been satisfied with overtime. Winning teams and teams that are there to play aggressive and to put it to the other team like Dayball says he wants to, they go for two like that. We did, we did it, gave it to our best player, shoveled his way in. I mean, it was electric. I told you guys we were coming for Tennessee last week. You thought I was playing. I'm not playing, man. Ryan Tannehill is nothing in this league. I was never a fan of him in Miami. He had a few good years in Tennessee, whatever. I think that's a benefit of the running back that he has, Derrick Henry. But we don't fucking fear Ryan Tannehill. We fear God. We don't fear Ryan Tannehill, okay? Next. So that's week one. What a great, great week it was. Let's look ahead to week two. Thursday night football, Chargers and Chiefs. Chiefs have a 55% chance to win. Um, and I don't know who's going to win this game. I'm not going to lie with you. Uh, I kind of do like the Chiefs at home, minus three and a half point favorites, even money line on that. Uh, but I'm not sure, to be honest with you. I will say, I think Patrick Mahomes made a big statement this week. Josh Allen lit it up on Thursday night. People are talking about, oh, clear cut, best quarterback in the league, this and that. Patrick Mahomes laced up the cleats. Went out, ho-hum, 365 touchdowns. Let Josh Allen and everybody in the league know who's daddy and who still runs this. Um, it was a great performance by him. It shows me how great he really is. He can rise to the occasion, right? Um, I think the Chiefs, yeah, they, they, they missed Tyreek Hill in terms of what they can do offensively and, and how dynamic they can be. But when you have Mahomes and Kelsey as your backbone, they have enough skill at the wide receiver room to make noise. Um, and to and to not fall off as bad as people would would expect. Um, this is going to be a good game. Chargers are dealing with an injury to Keenan Allen. He hurt his hamstring in the fourth quarter. He did not return to the game. He may play. Even if he does play, he's going to be banged up and he's injury prone. So I really don't like that for him. Uh, I am leaning Chiefs, but over 54 sounds better than anything. Uh, I think both these teams obviously are going to score. It might be close. It's not going to be a blowout of the over but I do think the overcash is in this game. Next game, week two, let's take a look, talk about my New York football Giants again, playing the Carolina Panthers at home. Uh, again, I'll say it for the third time. I don't care. I'm fucking bricked up about that win, okay? We got the best record in the league, 1-0. Can't tell me shit. Uh, Panthers are going to be ready to bounce back after that tough loss, I'm aware. The Giants hopefully will be focused and over that emotional win in Tennessee and ready for the Panthers. Uh, Long story short, give me the Giants at home. 2-0 start to the year. Uh, I think they are the better overall team than Carolina. I think playing at home is going to help. And I think the fact that they were able to rip off that win in Tennessee, they're going to ride that momentum wave to a 2-0 start and make people turn their heads and say, what's going on in New York? Next game, Dolphins and Ravens. Uh, this is a very interesting game, more so for the Dolphins and the Ravens. Okay, Ravens are an established AFC contender. We know what they have. We know what they offer. Dolphins, just to me, passed their test against the Patriots. They passed the Patriots. They're now the clear second team in the AFC East. Um, the Bills now have a target. They have a number two contender coming for them. Um, they looked very solid. Like I said, Tua played well. They moved the ball through the receivers very well. The defense was locked down. Okay. Um, but this this game against the Ravens is going to be a really good test to see how they stack up against other AFC contenders. 
I'm really excited to see how the Dolphins respond to their week one success, how Daniels deals with a more explosive quarterback, a more dynamic offense. How is he going to get his run game going? Because we saw that the run game was electric in the preseason. The run game wasn't really there uh, in week one, which you would have liked to see being that they were leading the entire time. You could have thought they could have ran the Patriots into the ground, which they really didn't do. They didn't need to do it either. Um, but they could have done that better. I think Edmonds will have more productivity and even Moster will get more work in this, uh, this next matchup. So I'm not sure who's going to win this game. Um, being that it's at a three and a half point spread favored for the Ravens right now, I think it's that thick because the Ravens are at home and because they're an established contender. Um, but to me, in my eyes, this game is 50, 50 coin flip. That being said, it's a 50, 50 coin flip. Flip. If you're going to give me three and a half points with it, with a good team, I'll take it. Give me the dolphins plus three and a half over in this game as well. 43 and a half points. Um, I really like the fins. I think they historically play the Ravens pretty well, whether it's at home or in Baltimore. So I'll take my chances with the three and a half points. Even if they lose by a field goal, I'll ride with it. Next game, Bucks and Saints. This game as well could be a toss up. Saints played very well. Gritty win had to come back against a subpar Atlanta team. That's what happens in the division. Uh, when you play in a division opponent, they know each other. There's familiarity there. Um, and records really usually don't matter. Obviously, week one, everybody's 0-0. But records usually don't matter in these division games. Uh, as you saw with the Colts and Texans, they tied. Colts are a far better team. There's no way they should have tied that game. But when you play a division game, really anything can happen. So given that, I don't think the Bucs played a very impressive game on Sunday night against a trash Dallas team. Um, and the Saints didn't play as well as they could either. And historically, the Saints, obviously without Sean Payton this year, but the Saints play the, the Bucks very, very well all the time. Um, I like the Saints to compete. Leaning Saints plus three on this one again because I see it as a toss-up. So usually if it's a 50-50 toss-up, I'll take the points. Um, Jameis showed that he can stay calm and collected under pressure when he's not winning. He led the Saints to a comeback in the fourth quarter. I believe they were down 17-6 to six in the fourth quarter. Uh, he's got a great weapon in Michael Thomas, who seems to have regained that confidence that he had when he was a star receiver in the league just a couple years ago, had about 56 yards, I think two touchdowns on the day. Um, and Kamara really wasn't a factor in this game. His production was limited because probably they were behind most of the game. They had to flip the script and throw the ball more. Um, and also you look at Taysom Hill, he had four rushes, I think for 80, 81 yards. So Taysom Hill took up some of that production as well. I expect Kamara to bounce back and produce more next week. Um, I think this is going to be an entertaining game, and I will have a pick for you officially come Sunday. Next, Bears and Packers. This game, I'm going to cover it real quick because I, I looked at the line today, and I thought it was completely out of pocket. So we got the Packers favored minus 10 at home against the Bears, which, you know, I understand if we're looking at history, Aaron, Aaron Rodgers is Chicago bears daddy. Like he is your father. He owns you. He told you that. Sorry if I had to open a, an old wound or something like that. But the fact that the bears are getting two possessions plus 10 after beating an NFC contender Niners at home. Uh, I think that's out of pocket. I think you got to take the bears plus 10. I think the Packers are not nearly as good as anyone thought in the preseason. Um, we saw them struggle on offense. Aaron Rodgers is not on the same page with his receivers. There was a clear, clear offensive discrepancy in terms of talent level between Minnesota and, and the Packers. You could see that Minnesota was far talent, far more talented, far more dynamic, far more explosive. 
And I think 10 points is way too much. Yeah, I think the Packers are going to win this game just because of Aaron Rodgers and how good he can be. But give me, again, give me the Bears to, to cover the spread in a two-possession game in the division, as we just talked about. This is a division game. Bears want to beat Aaron Rodgers very, very badly. I feel like the Bears played in a shit weather condition, as did the Niners, so no one really played well in that game. I expect the Bears to play better offensively. I expect Fields to play better and give the Packers a run for their money and cover that plus 10 spread. So last of Monday night or of week two, we have Monday night football. Uh, I'm not really sure why they're giving us two games. I don't really care. I'll take two games on Monday night. We got Bills and Titans. Not going to talk about that one too much because fuck the Titans. Ryan Tannehill. If I'm not scared of Ryan Tannehill, there ain't no way Josh Allen, Allen's scared of Ryan Tannehill. So give me the Bills in that one. I don't know about the spread. I don't know what it is. Give me the Bills all the way. The next game on Monday night I want to talk about is the Vikings and Eagles. Now, I think that this game could be for the Vikings to what the Dolphins game is to them in terms of that measuring stick. Now, the Eagles are not that established uh, conference contender that the Ravens are. But if you remember what we talked about a few minutes ago, the Eagles were one of the top performing teams in the NFC. So in terms of who's playing well um, and who's, who's riding a high coming into week two, in the NFC, I think you're looking at the two best teams, Vikings and Eagles, on Monday night. Um, and in terms of are the Vikings one of the best teams in the in the conference, I think they're going to have another uh, an opportunity to measure themselves out against the Eagles, who put up 38 points on the road in Detroit. Um, the, if the Vikings can knock off the Eagles in Philadelphia, which is always a hostile environment in primetime, where Kirk Cousins absolutely sucks on primetime football games, he's trash. If they can get over that hump um, and they can beat this good Eagles team, uh, it'll be even more of a confidence booster for them. I think they will solidify themselves as the clear-cut best team in the division, um, and they will enter that category as top three teams in the NFC, and people will really start paying attention to this offense and this, this team as a whole. So that's a great game that we're looking forward to Monday night. Uh, Kirk Cousins, they call him a game manager. Kirk Cousins was winning that game. Him and him and Jettis were winning that game for the Vikings. So if he can play like that at a high level this year, um, this team is going to go very far. I love this Minnesota Vikings team. I think they're going to make a lot of noise. And I can't wait for a week two. So one more topic I'm going to talk about. Um, I wasn't going to touch on college football today, but I decided not to because there's just so much shit that happens in college football. Like, I'm pretty sure... Nine out of the top 10 ranked teams did not cover their spread this weekend. Like at least six, seven, or eight of the top 25 flat out lost. Okay. You got Notre Dame losing to Marshall, Texas A&M lost to App State, Washington State beat Wisconsin, Baylor lost to BYU, Kentucky beat Florida. I mean, there was just a bunch of bullshit happening in the college football world. So I can't really wrap my head around it. Bama almost lost. They won by one point as a three score favorite over Texas. So college football is fucking whack. I can't keep up with all these schools. I just watch as a fan. Um, and when I get the opportunity to dive more in depth on college football, I will. Because at this point, I don't, feel, I don't feel comfortable speaking about college football as much as I would like to. So the last thing we're going to talk about, shift gears right into the MLB. They implemented or they voted on some rule changes that are going to go into effect next season. I just want to talk about them and give my opinion on them real quick. So there's three different things that happen. Uh, they're going to implement a pitch timer, which they did have already, but there's a different variation on that. They're going to implement uh, a ban on the defensive shifts, which I know a lot of people are excited about. 
And they're also implementing bigger bases, which is interesting. And we'll talk about that. So the first thing is a pitch timer. Um, right now, they do have a pitch timer. I'm not sure the specifics of how long it is or any of the details that go into it. But for this pitch timer, basically, uh, the pitchers are given 30 seconds between batters, uh, 15 seconds between pitches, and 20 seconds between pitches when there are no runners on base. So they did. They ran this pilot program in the, in the, in the minor league system, and they found that it reduced game time by 26 minutes, which uh, Robert Manfred is stuck on the fact that fans want a quicker pace of play and which I'm a fan. And yes, we do want a quicker pace of play. 26 minutes is a lot. So if it can really reduce game time by that much, I'm down. Okay. Um, pitchers must begin their motion to deliver the pitch before the timer expires. If a pitcher violates the timer, it's an automatic ball. If a batter violates the timer, whether they're adjusting their gloves or whatever, some kind of protective equipment and they're not in the box in 15 or 20 seconds, that's an automatic strike charge to the batter. Um, the timer will reset between pitches if the pitcher throws over or steps off the round, the mound. And this is something that I do not like at all. The pitcher is limited to two, what they call disengagements per at bat. So in disengagement is something like a pickoff or a step off the rubber. Um, this limit does reset when a runner advances. So if there's a single, or if a runner steals that two disengagement limit will be reset. Um, if a pitcher breaks this limit and goes for three attempts, the runner will automatically get to advance one base. Now, the reason I don't like this is because it kind of gives an advantage to base stealers. And we'll talk about how the advantage the base stealers are getting with the bigger bases as well. So we're kind of giving base stealers two advantages. Um, and the reason I don't like it is because pitchers oftentimes will throw over more than twice to check on a runner. Um, I know personally when I was playing on at least three different occasions, I had a pitcher throw over four times in an at-bat. A couple of times, it was three consecutive times he threw over to check on me. So to tell a pitcher he can only throw over twice to check on a runner, um, I don't agree with that, especially if pitchers like sometimes to throw over two consecutive times, right? So if a pitcher throws over two consecutive times now, the runner knows he can't come over again. He's going to get a big jump. He's going he's gonna to try and cheat, and he's going to steal that base probably pretty easily. So I don't like the fact that they're restricting the pitcher's ability to control the run game. I don't think that's the, the point of a pitch timer. I don't think that's the point of this disengagement limit. So I do think that enough players are going to complain about that. Enough pitchers are going to complain where they're going to have to look at that um, because I think that's kind of – that's tinkering with the game of baseball a little bit too much for me. I understand we're trying to get this game more enjoyable for fans and grow the game, but that's kind of taking the essence of baseball away and you're removing an element from the game that I don't think needs to be removed. Defensive shifts. So the big thing here is obviously we had shortstops and second bases playing short right field, about 150 feet out. Uh, and when you're playing out there, for those of you who don't know, your range is ginormous okay when you're playing in the outfield you can pretty much go almost all the way from second base to first base and field a ground ball almost cover that full 90 feet so the fact that they were bringing everybody in you got to have four infielders on the infield two on each side and you can't be on the outfield grass you have to be touching the dirt um, i think this is going to help eliminate the fact that pitchers are obviously pitching towards the shift they're pitching players inside trying to get them to swing into the shift um, the other side of that coin is the other side of the field is obviously wide open for these hitters. So why don't they just lay down a bunt or learn how to hit the other way? I get that. Um, infielders are not allowed to switch sides. So a shortstop can't go play second base. If you're a shortstop assigned a shortstop, you must stay on the left side of that bag. 
Um, if the infielders are not aligned properly, the offense can play out the play and they can either choose the result of the play or they can choose an automatic ball. Um, the next part is a little bit confusing to me. I didn't really understand it, um, but I believe it said that the outfielders can come play the infield. Uh, but an infielder basically, like I said, cannot go play the outfield. So you can't have a second baseman or shortstop playing short right field. Um, I do need to get a little bit more clarification on this, but I think the essence of this rule is to avoid having four outfielders. Uh, they're saying if you want to bring someone from the outfield in, to me, I think they're saying that's okay. I don't know exactly where they would have to stand, but they're trying to limit having four people in the outfield. So basically, if someone wants to bring an outfielder in, uh, I believe they're able to do that, but obviously they're running the risk of having only two people in the outfield. Um, the other thing is, is I'm okay personally if they were to say, okay, the main rule is all infielders have to have their feet on the infield. Because if you think about it, if I want to put my shortstop on the right side of the bag to second base and someone hits a ball right on the screws, a hard missile, I mean, it's pretty much got to be hit within one step or right at these fielders. Um, the reaction time is going to be way too quick. The, the ball might be by them before they even get to take a step. So for me, as long as they're inside on the infield dirt, you can put four guys on that side if you want. Um, but the fact that they're closer to the batter is going to make them that much more difficult to make a play on a ball that's hit hard. So if they want to, if a guy pulls the ball historically and you want to play three guys there, I'm okay with that. But I don't think someone should be playing in short right field. This isn't softball. Okay. This is baseball. I do think the infielders should be in the infield, but in terms of alignment two versus two or three versus one, I don't think that really matters. Um, like I said, if someone hits one on the screws, you can hit through a shift, a three player shift very easily if you hit a line drive on the screws. So that's my take on the defensive shifts. I do think it's going to help the game. Um, we're going to see averages go up on balls put in play. Uh, hitters are going to probably be more happy about it. Obviously players like Joey Gallo, they're going to love it. Um, we'll see how it impacts the game. I think it is going to be a good move for baseball. And the last thing I want to talk about is the bigger bases. So right now, first base, second base, third base are 15 inches square. They will now be 18 inches square. Um, this move mainly made with player safety in mind. Uh, this is most important at first base. Obviously this is going to lead to more stolen base attempts. Cause if you just think about it as common sense, the runners have more surface area to grab. They're going to get there sooner. They're going to be able to get around tags better. Um, so we're going to have more stolen base attempts. We're going to have a higher stolen base success rate, which is fine. Um, but the main thing is they're trying to improve player safety, avoid collisions at the bag, particularly at first base. Um, so a lot of times you can see, we have seen first basemen get their ankle stepped on. We've seen first basemen get, dislocate their shoulders on a throw that brings them up the line where they have to come off the bag and catch and tag the runner. Um, giving the first baseman this extra three inches, what it does is it allows him to keep his foot on the bag normally where he would and still make that catch and tag play with three extra inches between him and the runner to where it's not a bang bang collision. And he can kind of swipe that tag and spin through with a little bit more ease than he would be able to before. Um, one, one note I want to say about these bigger bases, uh, is, is the league mentioned that they wanted to have these bigger bases in an attempt to reduce the amount of times a player slides through a bag. Uh, so we see this at second and third, mainly. Um, if you steal a base, if you go for a double, whatever it is, uh, if you guys don't know, that base is live. So if you slide through the bag and you come off the base, they can tag you out. You do have to maintain your hand or your foot or some part of your body on that base through the slide. 
So what the MLB is trying to do is reduce the amount of times a player slides through the bag. Um, maybe that's to avoid hitting the infielder on the other side of the bag. I'm not sure. But to me, sliding is it's like a hidden art form in the game of baseball. So there's many nuances in baseball that your average fan may not know about. Sliding is definitely one of them. Sliding is not something that you can just do. Uh, if you don't know this, we practice sliding, or at least, you know, my teams did. Um, you see all these guys doing these fancy pop-up slides and swim move slides. They don't do that without practicing it. All right. Sliding is an art form and you have to be able to master it. Um, the two names that come to mind right away are Javi Baez with his swim move. He's done that numerous times over the course of his career. And you have Trey Turner, who looks like he's sliding on ice whenever he's sliding out there. So those two guys are some of the best in the league at sliding. And I think if we're giving these bigger bases in an attempt to reduce the amount of times a player slides through the bag, that's kind of giving them a handicap. And if we're giving them a bigger base already to steal bags more easily, and we're limiting the pitchers to how many times they can throw over, I don't think we need to give them any more crutches. Um, and give them any more advantages on the base paths. So we'll see how these rules impact the game. Um, I do think, for the most part, they are going to help the game of baseball. They're going to help get fans more involved, more action, more traditional-style baseball, okay, hit and run, more manufacturing of runs. Obviously, everyone likes the home run, but we're missing that small ball element in the MLB right now, um, and that's what you know. true baseball fans, they don't mind seeing that stuff um, because that's what real baseball is. That's how it's supposed to be played. Um, so I do, I, overall, I do like these changes. I think they're going to help the game in the long run. So that's all I got for you guys. Uh, I said I would keep it quick. I think I did. Look, I'm on cloud nine still from these giants. Uh, I'm going to be on cloud nine until next week. We do this podcast. Hopefully they win and I'm back here with another grin on my face. But I'm enjoying doing this podcast. We got current sports that I love talking about going on right now. So I'm going to be on here every week giving you my take, ripping players for screwing up my fantasy, even though they don't give a fuck. I do. Okay? Sean McVay, if you know you're not going to use acres, let me know, dude. Just let me know. Like, I understand you don't want to tell the opposing coach, whatever, but let me know. Okay? Too much money being put down on these games. Too much money being put down in fantasy for you to not let me know that your starting running back is only going to play five fucking snaps. All right. That's all I got. We're signing out from the sack. I'll see you next week. Thank you. What I tell them hoes, bow, bow, bow to me, drop down to your knees. Your money, the mafia, that's where the love sees. I'm in the Dominican, big poppy Ortiz, doing target practice, all these bitches just aiming to please. Shout out to the CEO, 500 degrees. Shout out to the OVO, Red Wings and Fatigues. Ah, oh, niggas.